You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre. Leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 108 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm I'm busy, Valerie. I'm very, very busy. I'm in Sydney today. I've been doing author talks and workshops and I had a meeting with my publisher and I'm talking to you and a little bit later on this evening I'm going to be um, talking to the fabulous uh, Write Your Novel um, class, which is in uh, from the Australian Writers Centre, which is taking they're, they're in a six month program learning how to write their novels, mm. and I will be uh, sharing my words of wisdom. I'm sure I have many of those to share. Um, so I'm having a really busy day. It's like it's you know I tend to cram all of my writing stuff into a 24 hour period, and this is one of them. Yeah, right. It's it's like mm. on the road with Al, huh? It it pretty much is, and it's like everyone goes, "Wow, you're so busy," and I'm like, "Yeah, well, I only get up here." <laughs> Once every six weeks or so, I've got to do everything. All yeah, at once. squish it all in a couple of days. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's really Exciting. Good. Very nice. And what about you, Valerie? What are you up to? For the first time in my life today, mm. I made chocolate crackles. <laughs> For the first time in your life, yeah. You made chocolate crackles. And how did they go, Valerie? Well, they're in the fridge now. Because okay. I timed it so that I would have enough time to do that and then record, come straight over and record this podcast with you. And so I put them in the fridge and uh, they look good. Right. I can't wait to eat them. It's like MasterChef. It's like will they set or won't they? Yeah. I hope they do. Did you follow the instructions carefully? To the letter. I even used measuring instruments. Oh, for your kofa and your other assorted bits and pieces? Yes, mainly a cup. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Good start. Excellent. And a tablespoon. Chocolate crackles are awesome. I can't believe you've never made them before. Never in my life. So I'm right. very excited. And what brought this on? Why did you decide you needed chocolate crackles? I just decided I wanted to have chocolate crackles this week and, yeah, <laughs> I've decided to make them. I've never, I've, I've never made them before. I like eating them. But mm. I guess I kind of looked at the local area and I couldn't find any to buy and I thought the only way to do it was to <laughs> make chocolate crackles myself. That's my I excitement couldn't find the week. chocolate crackles to buy so I made them. Yes. I don't know, it's like a start-up. Maybe, there's like a, maybe it's time to bring the chocolate crackle franchise to the burbs. Yeah, I could maybe start like chocolate crackle Uber and do home delivery. Good. Coos Crackles. I love it. Let's Coos do it. Coos Crackles. All right. But this podcast is not about making chocolate crackles. No, that's crackles. right. Sorry. And we got clearly distracted. I don't have as, as a exciting life as you, um, you know, going to do all these author talks and stuff like that. Well, certainly not today, this week. Today you don't because <laughs> so I, was, today I, don't. I was laughing with the, 
with the girls in the office here about the fact that usually it's like I'm. you say to me, how was your week, Valerie? Oh, sorry, how was your week, Alison? And I go, well, I walked the dog and <laughs> rode a beard and I did whatever. And, you, and I say, how was your week, Valerie? And you say, well, I was in the Philippines and I did a keynote speech for 20,000 people and blah, blah, blah. And so today our roles are reversed. <gasps> the tables are turned. Yes. I love it. That means I'm going to be blunt today and I will start talking in Latin. I'm okay. ready to go. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, before you start talking in Latin, we have a shout, a shout out to Mardukian oh. who has left us a review on iTunes. And Mardukian has said, simply amazing. This podcast is fantastic. It keeps me motivated to work towards my goals, giving me a swift kick when I need it. Alison and Valerie are often hilarious and never fail to entertain and educate me. I can safely say that I wouldn't be the writer I am today without this podcast cast keep up the fantastic work oh, oh my goodness so i've just gone all warm and gooey well, you realize that the swift kick is you don't you really no. i am the warm embracing end of this partnership and you are the swift kick <laughs> no just putting that out there if you disagree I'm... with me you feel free to tweet okay <laughs> chocolate crackles are warm and embracing don't you mm, think it's true yeah. it's very true yeah, yeah okay you might win today Yes. All right. So thank you so much, Marduki, and really, really appreciate it. That certainly made our day, if not our week, if not our month, if not our year. Yeah. I would say. I'm I'm all over it. Thank you very much. Let us move on to the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week, shall we? (laughs) I have an interesting link. Okay. Uh, It's actually from Forbes, and it's called Three Ways That Handwriting with a Pen Positively Affects Your Brain. And it goes on to say that Stephen King supposedly wrote Dreamcatcher in longhand using a Waterman cartridge pen. I don't Mm. think I would be that fancy if I wrote things longhand. J.K. Rowling penned the tales of Beetle the Bed, all 157 pages in longhand, and it was sort of like bound in leather and it sold for $4 million (laughs) at auction. I'd write, I'd write longhand if I thought it would sell for $4 million as well. I know. <laughs> and uh, it goes on to say that handwriting increases neural activity in certain sections of the brain, similar to meditation, and that it forces us to slow down, you know, and smell the ink mm. and think about what we're doing and, and all of that kind of thing. So mm. I think that um, I think that I'm – going to explore this a bit more I do write by hand from time to time but what I did last night I was reading this book I'm not sure if you've read it Al it's called Steal Like an Artist by Austin Cleon Mm, I've heard of it but I have not as yet read it's it's a great little book it's easy read and one of the things that came out of it that I have implemented already even though it was only last night is to have (laughs) In between chocolate crackles. In between yeah. chocolate crackles, yes. Um, is to have a digital desk and an analog desk. Oh. Yeah. So um, just as exciting as making chocolate crackles, on the weekend I went to Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we going? <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I was researching on the internet and I went, oh, my God, that's the exact desk that I need because I've been working with this temporary sort of desk ever since moving, even though moving was 10 months ago now. And Mm. I bought a sit-stand desk 
you know, that you can sit yes. and you can stand yeah. and it's got a yes. little crank thing that you can, you know, make it go up mm. and it's the perfect size for what I wanted. And obviously, well, that's going to be my digital desk because I've pro- I put my computer in and I've set it all up and all of that. But then I've got my other desk, which is, you know, very nice and pretty and stuff like that, but I'm not going to put my computer on it at all or any devices. And mm. it's going to be solely my analog desk where I have art paper and spiral bound notebooks and pens and highlighters and colored things and stuff like that. <laughs> colored things. <laughs> See, of course, when we're talking about this on day one, we're speak to me in, in in week three to see how it goes but my plan is to be this incredibly you know creative artistic right. person and are you desk. gonna ha- are these two desks next to each other or are they in separate rooms they're like L-shaped. do you have like an analog room and a digital room or no 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 not quite that advanced they're okay. they're sort of l-shaped not quite l-shaped there's a little bit of a cupboardy thing in the middle but they're in the same room and if i really right. wanted to i can roll my little chair around to one from one to the other right mm. i'm just envisaging this and have you actually set it all up yet like have you have you got your pretty colored things on your analog desk and your have I you set, actually done that bit? I set the um digital desk up because you know it's from ikea and had to be assembled quite yes. complex yes. Uh, and I have not yet set up by analog desk but I will be I'll show you photos I was I've... gonna say when you get that all set up can you take photos for us and put them on Instagram and in the show notes because I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of this and all I can imagine is that within about if it was me within about a week the pretty colored analog desk would be covered in all the bits of paper and the other things that didn't fit on my digital desk and it would end up being just like a horizontal surface to be covered in all manner of things. Yeah, that there is that risk. I'm going yes. to try and avoid it as much as I as, as, as much as I can and I'm just okay. really curious to see what comes out of analog Valerie as opposed to digital Valerie because, you know, emails mm-hmm. and admin and invoicing and stuff like that will come out of digital Valerie. But, you know, who knows? The great Australian novel might come out of Analog Valerie. Oh, Analog Valerie is giving birth to the great Australian <laughs> novel. I cannot wait. Okay. Well, you will keep us updated though, won't you? You will, you know, post. Because, you know, I only have one desk and it's generally covered in all manner of things, digital and otherwise. And usually there are Pokemon cards and there's an occasional cricket bat and there's a oh. lightsaber and there's a – oh, yeah. I a get it lightsaber. All going I want a lightsaber. Where did you get a lightsaber? Kmart. Oh, okay. <laughs> Got about six lightsabers at my house. I'm willing to send one to you. Yeah, we cool. also have tomahawks carved out of um, timber Ooh. and we have um, all manner of Nerf guns. So there's oh, usually yes. Nerf bullets somewhere on my desk. So it's all very um, kind of analogy when you think about it. Yeah. Because there's a whole lot of junk and the computer. So I reckon that's pretty analogy, really. Pretty analogy, yeah. I think mm. that, yeah, you, 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 you're a hybrid. It needs some work. It needs a bit of work, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will let okay. you know how I get on. But it could be – this book is saying that, and, and as it's supported by this article as well, is that it can be useful to have these two different spaces because your mind and your brain actually works a different way. Which brings us to article number two, Wait, which I thought I would right. share with you. Because this is – this was in The Guardian and it's about um, – it's by William Boyd and it's about his writing day. So he just mm. basically talks about um, that, yeah, he, he's, he's 
writing process. And he has two desks in his office too. Oh, there you go. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But um, he doesn't quite necessarily call it a digital desk and an analogue desk. But he does say, interestingly, and he's written like 15 books, books, 15 novels. Um, he does say that he writes, he always writes the first draft of his novel in longhand. Mm. And he even has a very specific pen that he uses called the Rotring Tiki Graphic with a 0.02, uh, 0.2 millimeter nib. <laughs> Whereas mine is the Pentel Energel TL10707. Wow. Yeah, that's my favorite pen. And I'm mine not... is the whatever got picked up from the boys' <laughs> pencil case, but whatever, yes. But like mine's going. not fancy. Mine's like a $2 or something from Officeworks. It's not like a Waterman pen or anything with a cartridge. No. But um, he writes them in his spiral-backed, marginless A4 notebooks and he, you know, just writes for hours basically. Mm. And it usually takes him about a year. So he he avoids that whole editing as you go kind of thing because it's much harder to do that, obviously, when you write longhand. And it mm. takes him about a year. Um, he takes a break uh, at cocktail hour. <laughs> right. Where there's wine, TV news, conversation, family, friends, that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, it takes about a year. And then he um, – it's transferred to the computer. So his right. point is that every single word is written at least twice. and But the computer draft can be, of course, endlessly revised and edited and all that kind of stuff. But he finds mm. the process of getting that first draft out really useful by doing it in longhand. Very interesting. Mm. I mean, you know, we've talked about longhand before and I, I find it uh, very difficult to write that way. I find that my I can't get my longhand hand to keep up with my brain and so I get frustrated and I find it quite it's just a t- I find it quite tiring to write that way it's so much quicker um and much much easier for me to type but maybe so that's because I you need that. to find the right pen and your hand won't get tired then oh see. clearly it's the pen mm. that's the problem all right see? so well there's a good excuse for me to now go out and buy lots and lots of pens to try yes well, just need, take my I'll advice then, and get the Pentel energy <laughs> I, could, I could do that but then I could also then buy new notebooks to go with them oh, couldn't I? Yeah. because you always need a new notebook always not that I, I don't have a stationary addiction at all <laughs> but I could do that couldn't I yes definitely <laughs> I have to hold myself back these days from buying notebooks because, yeah, there's cupboards full of blank notebooks. I know. I have the same problem. But I, it, it's very handy. So um, my oldest son, Mr. 12, had a high school, you know, fate thing that he had to do the other day and he came home on Thursday night with three Chinese takeaway containers and said, oh, my God, Mum, I've got to fill these for tomorrow for the fate stand. And, of course, it's 8.30 at night when he oh. remembers. Oh. And I'm like, what am I going to put in these things? I know. I've got 80,000 notebooks. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So I filled them up with notebooks from my stash and that then clears space for me to now buy new notebooks. I'm of quite excited. Of course it does. Of course it does. Yes. Let's now move on to something from Boing Boing uh, called Famous Writers with Their First Word Processes. <gasps> oh, this is fabulous. Yes. And uh, because there's a book, <laughs> can you believe this? A new book called Track Changes, <laughs> oh. a literary history of word processing. And there's pictures <laughs> of Stephen King 
with his Wang System 5 Model 3 word processor in 1982. Um, <laughs> Eve floppy Sedgwick. Discs. Yeah, all the floppy disks. John Updike's floppy disks. Oh, wow. So do you remember your first word processor? So not a typewriter but the, you know, actual word processor. Um, well, the first one that I bought for myself was a um, was a Mac. It was the grey box, you know, that had the – so it was all built into the one unit. It was a grey box. Yeah, Macintosh. Um, yeah, and it had the – yeah, so that was I, – I bought that when I was about, gosh, 20, I suppose, mm. 19 or 20, wow. so that I would That's have it at home. That's an expensive purchase. It was expensive. But, mm. I had to actually – so I, it was at the time I was going to uni part-time and I took out a loan through the student – you know, co-op or whatever it was, mm. so that I could buy the so that I could buy the the Mac. It was, a, and I had to pay it off over you know yep. two years or something. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was fantastic, and I was completely hooked on Macs from that point onwards. Ever more. Yeah, right. Every single computer I've ever bought since then has been a Mac of some type. Mm-mm. Wow. Um, so yeah, and I showed a picture. I showed um, my twelve-year-old a picture of it. Um, <laughs> The other day we were clearing out, you know, old photos and stuff. And he's like, what's that, Mom? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's my first computer right there. Jeez. And it probably has, you know, the power and the memory capacity of one millionth of your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, probably. But, but you know, again, it was like all I was doing with it was, you know, as you say, basic word processing. Mm. Um, the internet may have just been a glint in somebody's eyes at that point. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so there was none of that to worry about. It was just like, what do I want to do with this? I need to, I need to write stuff. So yeah. it was perfect. Yeah, so that's what I had. And I saved it on those little square yes. three-and-a-half-inch floppies. Yeah, I had those. Oh, right, yeah. So my Sorry. dad bought an Apple IIe when I Ooh. was like in year seven and Ooh. the word processing, pro- word processing program on that was called Zardax. And so I used Zardax for a little while wow. <laughs> until I got to uni and had to buy my own computer and also took out a loan. Yeah. Uh, but I be- I bought a, you know, IBM compatible B- PC because um, mm. they were cheaper. Cheaper. Max at the it time. Was probably, it was probably a much more sensible thing to do really. Yes. And I used WordPerfect. And um, I don't know if people remember WordPerfect, but yeah, I was quite a whiz at all of those keyboard shortcuts. But then Word came along and I was like, oh my God, how great's this? Yeah, it's (laughs) so true, isn't it? Yes, long time ago. So yeah, I don't know. I'll have to drag out a photo of my my first Word processor. Um, All right, so let's move on to our giveaway this week. Our giveaway for listeners who listened to last week's podcast is A Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald by none other than Natasha Lester. And quick synopsis, it's 1920s New York and Evelyn Lockhart attempts to support herself through medical school by auditioning on Broadway. Add in romance, gin and jazz and you have a recipe for a scandalous tale set during a glamorous bygone era. So one lucky reader is set to walk away with the popular new book from Natasha Lester. And, uh, of course, apart from being a fantastic author, she's a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre. So if you want to win, uh, just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. So writerscentre.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. 
Our course, Pitch Your Novel, How to Attract Agents and Publishers, gives you practical steps to attract agents and publishers to your manuscript. Presented by author Natasha Lester, this course gives you a step-by-step -step guide on how to create the perfect synopsis and cover letter, find the right publisher, and deal with the offers you get for your book. Natasha shares the same steps she used on her novel that resulted in a bidding frenzy between four publishers, so now it's your turn. With our on-demand courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash pitch. All right, let's move on to our word of the week. Just before we do, and I know it's exciting and I yes. know that you can't wait to share it with us, but I think it's important that you remember to remind people that if they want to meet Natasha, that they should come to the meetup in Sydney. That is a very good point. So, yes, if you do want to meet Natasha, I reckon half the tickets at least, if not more, are already gone. Uh, she will be at the Australian Writers' Centre in Sydney on the 31st of May. So just go to writerscentre.com.au and look for the meetup meetups and um and book your ticket it's uh it's going to be awesome because natasha is always great value and really great fun hmm. all so. right come on then hit me with it <laughs> what is the word of the week bum, 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 bum. I'm sure you've um i'm sure you know what it is or you've used it before but i would say it's not a common word mm. it's are you ready mm -hmm. peripatetic oh i didn't don't think i said that right peripatetic there you go that's it Peripatetic. Yes. Do you like that word? I love it. <laughs> you love it. I'm all over it. <laughs> Do you use it much? I'm just trying to think if I've ever used it. I, I, I yeah, no, I, I, I have used it. I don't use it much. It is a very good word, though. Mm. Like it is very specifically for the context, a very good word to describe that particular thing. If that's what you want to say, then mm. it is exactly the right word. Yeah, it's good. So it's a fancy mm. word to mean wandering as in when you wander around, not when you wonder whether the sky is blue. Um, it comes from the Greek for pacing to and fro, but it's someone who does that in a more organised way rather than someone who bumbles about. So a peripatetic startup CEO might split her time between Sydney and Silicon Valley in order to create the networks she needs to make her business a success. So, for example. So, sometimes you will see um, the word used in uh, an appropriate context, obviously, and now you know what it means. Peripatetic. And I go. look forward to seeing how the crew that are using your words each week in a blog post or a tweet or a Facebook update will um, go about using that one. That's and feel right. Free, feel free to join in that challenge at any time. Just tag us so that we know what you're doing. Yes. Um, if you'd like to use Valerie's Word of the Week, then uh, go right ahead and let us know that you've done it. Yeah, I love it. And I love reading the blog posts where people are including it in their um, blog posts or their social media updates using the hmm. Word of the Week. So, yes, do tag us. We'd love to see how you go with it. Let's now move on to our writer in residence this week, someone you and I both know. Yes, exciting. Yes. yes. So uh, many, many years ago, like 
20 a long, long time in a galaxy far, far, far away. Far, far away, yes. In magazine land. Uh, I met Marina Go when she was editor of Dolly and um, she's uh, done so many things since then. She's n- not only edited Dolly, she's edited um, Elle, uh, Australian Good Taste. Um, she's been publisher at Fairfax at, and all of the major publishing houses. She's had a very, very um, – brilliant career in the publishing Mm -hmm. industry but has now gone on to become uh, uh, a board director on a number of different boards so she's really making it in the career sense and she has written a great book called Breakthrough 20 Success Strategies for Female Leaders. Now, some people might think that this is a book for sort of, you know, people at the start of their career, but I've read it. Um, I read it in one sitting and um, it's it's not only for people who are starting their careers, it's for women at any stage of their careers. And so um, it's a great book. It's part memoir, part how-to and inspiration, and Marina certainly does it very well. So let's have a chat to Marina Go. So, Marina, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for asking me. I read your book in one sitting to the point where I um, – uh, I've only said this about one of the other books, actually uh, – to the point where I had to eat dinner and um, – I was I had it in front of me and I was eating my dinner as I was turning the pages and there's spaghetti bolognese um, on it. I seem to have spaghetti bolognese a lot, but some of our listeners will know. And I couldn't put it down. Um, oh. It's called Breakthrough, an insider's view of the climb to the top. Now, for those readers who haven't read the book yet, can you tell them what it's about? Okay, well, it's essentially a book about the highs and lows of my career. And uh, and the reason that I thought it was really important to demonstrate some of the lows is that people often come up to me and say, oh, wow, you've had such a great career and, you know, I'll never be able to have a great career like that and, you know, you're so lucky. And I always say to them, no, 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 I've been around a long time and, uh, you know, and I have managed to do the things that I've done. I mean, I've had a, I've had a career that's been really rewarding and, um, and you know, fun. I've, I've enjoyed it. But, um, but, you know, it hasn't all been smooth sailing. And I think it's important for young people, and, you know, it's not just women, but, but, certainly, um, but certainly young women, to feel that, uh, that they, can, um, they can deal with adversity or they can deal with a roadblock uh, and that, you know, careers can go on, careers can bounce back. Um, and so, you know, that's the reason I've approached it because the book is aimed at the next generation of female leaders. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think generationally, every generation deals with, um, you know, I think adversity in a different way. Right? So, mm. and, I, and I guess I, I, I have, you know, two children who are millennials <laughs> and my sons, um, you know, I, I imagine that their level of resilience might be different to mine because of the factors involved in upbringing and all, all sorts of things. So um, that's really what it's about. It's about, you know, I'm trying to make people realise that, you know, you can make your own career more than anything. So, but why did you want to write it? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really want to write it. <laughs> Tell me really more about that. It, so, um, okay. So I... 
I didn't really want to write it. I actually had, um, I take notes, so I do take a lot of notes. I always kept a diary when I was younger. So I certainly had a lot of uh, background information. Um, and about eight years ago, I had this kind of crazy three months of downloading my whole, you know, all of my experiences, all the anecdotes I talked about uh, onto a computer. And then I, <laughs> I had been... Uh, sharing, you know, regaling people at dinner parties and parties and, you know, so at this kind of um, edge of the soccer field for years with stories about, you know, media stories. And everyone wants to hear a media story. Mm. And this particular mother of a, of a uh, son, uh, you know, a boy that was at school with one of my sons, and, uh, and she used to say to me for eight years, I mean, I'm, I've published books and you should write a book. I okay, no, 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 I'm not going to write a book. Um, and so earlier this year, Shane Curry, who who uh, owns Venture Press, the imprint, uh, she approached me and said, now I want you to write a book and before you say no, I'm going to tell you that the book is going to be called Breakthrough. It's going to be about how you, yes, how you as a, a woman who came from, you know, basically a working class background, went to a state high school, had migrant parents, no no inner circle networks, no old boy networks, old girl networks. How did you break through into leadership roles in media and sport? Because mm. a lot of people are asking that question. And, you know, books have been written by people who've come from different backgrounds, who've been able to um, have great careers. But this is the missing link. And, I, and, 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 you know, I'm there saying, no, 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 I can't write about it. She said, oh, but we need to inspire the next generation of female leaders. And that's my hot button, right? So mm. she got me at a weak point because I'm all about bringing on the next generation of female leaders. And so um, she convinced me, and she's clever, she knew that she would by saying that. And so, oh, God, <laughs> quickly. So I signed the contract before I had time to think. Um, but I did have a lot of notes, as I said. I had a lot of information that I could draw on. Um, so I wasn't really starting from scratch. And when you signed that contract, because what the book is, it's part memoir and part mm-hmm. inspiration and how-to in a sense, right? Yes. And so yes. when you signed the contract, did you know that's the way you were going to write the book? No. <laughs> no. Um, and I really, you know, I was given a deadline. So January 11 <laughs> was my deadline. And I got to um, September and I suddenly had a panic attack because I thought, I don't, I don't even know how I'm going to get this done. And then right. I... So when, but when did my, you sign the contract? Like what was the time in period? In June. Okay. In mm-hmm. June. Yep. So I then took myself off by myself to Hamilton Island for a week. Mm-hmm. And I, with the express purpose of coming up with a structure for the book and a chapter. Mm-hmm. And so it was during that period, and I, I'm a you know three o'clock wake up in the middle. I'm that person who wakes up at three o'clock and has the idea, right? So mm-hmm. I, one of the days, I think it was day two, I woke up and thought, okay, this is it. This is how I'm going to structure it. I, I'm going to do because um, I started writing it. I guess is the, the kind of the leadership inspiration, and I started throwing in a couple of anecdotes as an example, almost. As if I guess you, you know, when I'm re- when I did an MBA, when I was reading management textbooks, that's how they were written, mm. and I was really bored with it. I was getting really bored, and I thought, God, I, I can't stand reading things like this. How am mm. I going to keep young women who are millennials, who are you know, kind of fast, 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 and they want, they want, they want to be entertained. How am I going to keep them entertained? Um, and so I thought, you know, really the bit that they'll probably enjoy reading is the the tales, the anecdotes about my career. And I didn't want to kind of disconnect and break them up um, and, and have the management stuff around them. So I decided that 
I would offer them both so that when they're in this mood, they could read this bit. And when they're in the mood to read about the kind of practical, uh, inspirational how-to tips, that they could read that. And I think, I think they are different moods. So mm. I, I wasn't sure if it would work, I have to say. I was a bit, I was a bit un, uncertain, but the response I got from the publisher was very positive. And mm. so I decided to go with it. And once I was in it, there was no, no turning back. <laughs> so the, the, the book is, the, the, the memoir, what you've done is effectively written one chapter memoir, then one chapter inspiration and how-to, then one chapter memoir and one chapter inspiration how-to. So did you write it in that order or did you write all I the did. memoir first and then broke it down or write all the management stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah. No, what I, well, what I did was I, because I had some notes, what I did was I came up with the 20, um, the 20 ideas in terms, because I decided to structure it around the concepts of, you know, what are the what are the twenty things that I think made a difference to me getting from where I was as a young girl hoping to be the editor of Dolly one day to to being where I am now in my career. What what are those things that that are about me um, that that I think you know kind of altogether added to become me? Right. So mm. they're the things that we're calling the you know the twenty. Um, the 20 success strategies, right? Mm. And so once I once I had those, I then I want I did want the memoir to be relatively in order. There are times when I flip back and forward, um, but primarily it's in order. Mm. Uh, and so I then arranged the strategies around the memoir loosish, <laughs> if you like, mm-hmm. so that because you know I could have started with any. They're not in any particular order. And I think number one is you know the first one is to be feisty, which is obviously my favourite. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could have started with a different one if that one was less appropriate to the Dolly era. Mm. Um, and so then I I then wrote a you know a, a leadership um, guide around that, if you mm-hmm. like. So I guess I I guess in it's a long way of saying I, I guess I started with the memoir because. That was the. That's really the part of my book that set the time scale. Yes, yes. Or set now, the order, if you like. Yeah. You've. It's. It is your memoir, and you've talked about you know various incidences and conversations and things that have happened in your life. You also talk about uh, various things that have happened in other people's careers because they've mm. been part of your life. Did you struggle at any point to think? oh, you know, should I leave that bit out about myself that's a bit personal or should I leave that bit out about that person because, you know, that's their story kind of thing? Did Was you torn at any point on that, on that yeah. matter? Yeah, I did. And believe it or not, I did take some stuff out, right? <laughs> you may not, given, given how much is in there, you, I did actually take some things out. Um, I guess what I tried to do was... Um, tell a story without being overly gratuitous with other people's experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, look, in I guess there's no way around, you know, unless I um, operated in a vacuum, there were mm-hmm. always going to be other people in my, you know, in my world um, that impacted on my decision-making. So I tried, I tried to only put in the incidences where I felt they added to what I did next, you know, the decisions I might have made mm-hmm. next. Um, or, or um, how my personal uh, growth may have changed as a result. So, you know, mm. I look back and I think the sort of manager that I am today or the sort of leader I am today is a result of both good and poor leadership over the years. 
Mm. And so I felt like I needed to show some of that. And it, and it is hard. Like, it is tricky because, um, you know, you, you, you can't – I don't think you can write uh, a book that is um, – that is anything other than fiction, unless you bring you actually bring in other people's experiences, which is which is difficult. I've tried not to labour too hard. I mean, there are a few threads through it mm. that you know. There's, there's obviously my deputy editor, um, and you know that she's she's in it. My, well, my deputy editor for Dolly, and she's in it mm-hmm. quite a lot in the Dolly Times, and you know, and then obviously um, her her kind of life experience. Um, I took some stuff out about her that mm-hmm. I thought was too much but um you know I felt I feel and I've had I guess I've had feedback from people who worked with us at the time that they felt that I looked after her in terms of that um mm. you know her life and her experience um you know there's my own husband right so <laughs> my husband um is a thread through it and um you know he's he starts he's near the beginning and he goes through to the end and uh, you know, maybe maybe he would have preferred not to have had his life in there either. I mean, I think it's it is difficult. I think it's really hard to write a, a real life story mm. without bringing in other people's experiences. Um, if you want to have an authentic book, and I and I did. I mean, I, I also toyed with the idea, of course, of changing names, and then I thought, well, people will know. <laughs> people will know. So for a start, uh, so the people in the industry will know because I'll work mm. it out. But then mm. people outside of the industry, they don't. They, it's like fiction to them anyway. They don't know mm. who these people are, so that it yes. doesn't make any difference. So I felt, I felt, you know, I, I really wanted to have an authentic um, book that showed who I was as a leader and the sort of real experiences that I had, good and bad. Mm. Um, yeah. So look, I understand. I know. I know what you're asking, <laughs> um, and I was challenged by it. But in the end, I guess I made a decision to go with um, including, you know, other relevant people and their experiences in my book. Mm. Now you have a very demanding job at the moment. You are the mm-hmm. general manager at, at Bauer of the Hearst Publications. You also sit on various boards, including what I imagine is a very time-consuming one, as chair of West's Tigers, the NRL team, um, among other responsibilities. How in the world did you find time to write a book? <laughs> Seriously, well, on yeah, a practical I, level, <laughs> when did you do this? Yeah, I, I think the thing—it's—it's a, it's a really strange thing, and I—I I credit my newspaper um, training with this. But I'm a really fast writer, and so mm-hmm. I probably wrote this book in a fraction of the time that someone else might write a book. Mm. Once I have an idea, I can knock out. Uh, I can, uh, you know, as I realized to myself I could knock out a chapter in a couple of hours I mean I literally when I'm on a roll I'm seriously on a roll so it didn't when I think about the amount of hours I spent writing the book all up it really wasn't a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> and look part of that is too when you're writing something that's true and personal mm-hmm. and you're not having to you know you don't have to labor over every word because it's coming out in truth Yes, because you know you're just basically writing about an event that happened. I literally, you know, when you think about it, what I've done is re- I've reported on my own career. Mm. I haven't, um, and you know, I know that I've I've heard people say that the difference between a journalist writing a st- writing it about them, you know, their their career or writing a, their memoir is different to an all you know a writer like a true writer, not a journalist writing about. Mm. So you know, there's not I I didn't stop and think about 
you know, kind of embellishing the words in any way. I just, I literally reported on my career mm. and it flows quickly, which is probably why, you know, people are saying to me it's quite entertaining mm. um, because the, because the, um, the experiences are entertaining rather than necessarily the words, if you like. So mm. I, I just knocked out as, you know, I used to write, went back in the day when I was first a journalist on the Daily Mirror, I used to have to write the features page, which was a full page of a tabloid newspaper. Mm. And I would, you know, they'd come out, the editor would come out of conference at like nine in the morning and I'd have to have the whole thing filed by about 11, 12. <laughs> so I have to fill the whole page, right? So I became a really fast writer. And even when I was a magazine writer, mm. you know, I'd have two or three articles to write for the month and I'd do them in the first couple of days because that's it's just how I am. Yeah. And I think I'm like that as a person anyway. So I, mm. I can get a lot of things done really quickly. Um, I never felt that I didn't have the time, I guess. So also part of it's cathartic, you know, it's just yes. after a hard day, you need to kind of change your rhythm a bit. And some people watch trash TV <laughs> and I've done that too in yes. the past. And this for me was another kind of outlet. So let's talk about that. Is that something that you actually worked on when you got home every day and, and, you know, on a practical level, how did, when did you do it? No, I didn't do it every day. I should, I, I should have, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't that organized up front. I wish I had been. So what I ended up doing, I spent, um, so, you know, once a week I would write something. Um, and so, you know, over when you've got 20, 21 chapters, um, I tried to knock over part of it at least. So I had, you know, two thirds of it done or something done kind of every week. And then mm. I got to Christmas and I had, you know, our business closes down for Christmas and I worked out that I had to really refine 18 chapters. So I'd had two thirds of 18 chapters done, mm. but I had to refine 18 chapters. And so I literally did two a day. I, I got up in the morning, I went for a walk at the beach very early, went and had breakfast, came back, did one chapter, had lunch, did the next chapter. And there was one day when I was on such a high and such a roll that I did three in one day. So as I said, I'm, I can get right in the zone. Um, I didn't ever have, um, you know, writer's block or anything like that. So once, once I have an idea, I can really um, knock it out pretty quickly. Um, and because I had planned the ideas in September, I think the best thing that I did really for my for my book was go away for, for you know a week and plan plan out the chapters. Mm. That was by far the most um, reward, you know the well the most uh, invested <laughs> or the best time the, you know mm. the best use of my time in terms of planning this book was then because um, after that I knew what I was going to write about. Mm. Did you stick to that chapter plan that you did back in September? I did. I stuck mm. to it to the letter. Great. Yep. And so what um, in the book you talk about how one of the things that you wanted to do that was become a magazine editor, you knew that from a very young age and you eventually became editor of Dolly at 23. So what was it about magazines that appealed to you so much back then that you just knew you wanted to and you really chased after that goal? I think it was, you know, when I was a teenager, I had – very, I wasn't sporty. I wasn't into anything like that. I was completely obsessed with with Dolly. Mm-hmm. So you know, I was that I was that young girl who knew the on sale date, and I was at the newsagent before school to buy it. Okay, so you know, <laughs> I was almost like the dream dream um, reader of a magazine. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was quite good at maths and that sort of thing at school. And so you know, 
teachers try and kind of encourage you in a certain way. And, and I was thinking that I wanted to work. Computers are just, you know, there was just this new thing called computers <laughs> that came out. I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I'm 50 now. So back then, um, 34 years ago, these big box computers had just started. And I thought, okay, well, that's something that if you're good at maths, you could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, you know, I thought I wanted to be a pharmacist. And then just one day, I don't know, I was, I was about 16. I was sitting there looking at Dolly. And I remember reading a column, I was reading the editor's column, which I did every month, and Lisa Wilkinson was the editor of Dolly at the time, and I remember reading her column, and she must have written about her job. I think she, it was, you know, one of those times where she's written about what a great job she had. And I thought, oh my God, this is the job I want to do. And that, it was just like that. And after that, once I'd made up my mind, um, I'm pretty determined. So <laughs> that was it. I wrote a letter to, uh, to her. And you know, she or somebody sent me back a letter saying, you know, if you want to, if you want to be the editor of Dolly, you're going to have to become a journalist. I thought, oh God, I hadn't thought about that. So that's why I became a journalist. Mm-hmm. And so, um, <laughs> and, and 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 an amazing career ensued. And I thought, I think that the story is so good because so much has happened to, to you as well. Uh, it's you know, as you say, you reported on your career, but there were so many things to report on that it just carried it through because it was you know absolutely interesting event after interesting event after fascinating fascinating machination and so on now you yeah. said that the reason the publisher got to you was she said that you will be inspiring the next generation of women kind of thing yeah mm-hmm. and and that was the hot button why is that so important to you I and why are you I mean it's clear that you're very passionate about it why are you so proactive mm. about this and why what do you hope that the book will do um I think that I well I you know I, I, well I just think that I'm a person who's always always been concerned by the concept of um justice mm. and you know and that for me it's you know, the whole kind of thing around, you know, any any kind of gender bias, anything like that, has always been an issue for me. And I write a little tiny bit, I think I give a little insight into that with just one little anecdote at the front of the book when I talk about my family and my upbringing. Mm. Um, and I, I, I don't know why, but I was born resenting the fact that, you know, <laughs> men, that men and women were treated differently or girls and boys were treated differently. So always it was a problem for me. And it isn't always for everybody, but for some reason it was for me. Um, and so I guess throughout my career, um, some of the feelings of, you know, feeling, just feeling unjustly dealt with <laughs> mm. um, have caused, were part of the catalyst for me moving um, jobs often. And so um, gender is a really big one for me because it's something you can't control. You know, I can't control. Well, there are a lot of things you can't control, right? You can't mm. control who your parents are. You can't control where you grew up. You can't control what school you went to. You can't control... Um, what gender you are and mm-hmm. so those sorts of things really concern me if if you know people are um, disadvantaged in any way because of it and I have felt I guess I felt very early I got I, I, I experienced it very early where I could see that you know I could, especially in the newspaper world you know it was mm-hmm. one of the reasons I went in I thought I have to get across to magazines because I quite liked once I became a journalist I quite enjoyed it but I could see straight away that you know women and men were treated differently Mm. And I just refuse to be treated as, you know, an, an object or, a, you know, or, or, you know, just pe- people being treated because of what they look like, or what their gender is. And, you know, it really concerned me. So that's that's kind of where it began with the gender thing. But look, 
I, I've always felt grateful that I think through my career, you know, men and women, I feel like people have looked out for me. And, mm. and I do think it's helped me get to, or, you know, or give me the confidence to get to where I am. And I'm quite, I've, I've, you know, I'm quite confident in terms of backing myself. And I think, um, and I, I've always said that I think that's one of the key differences between um, women succeeding and women not su- succeeding. And men, are, men are generally, I know it's a generalisation, but are largely as a group more confident in their um, ability and their choices um, and in just going for a job. So I feel like if we can inspire young women to back themselves, make decisions, take a risk, that they will that they will get further. And I, mm. you know, I, you know, I just want to see a world where there's gender balance. I want to see a world where, where men and women have the same opportunities to succeed. And we're a long way from that. We're a hell of a long way from that. Um, and so, you know, I feel like if you're in a position to uh, to help make that a reality, that you should. You know, not everybody does, but I feel like I should. And so it's really important to me. You know, it's one of the reasons why I launched Women's Agenda because, again, there was no discussion at that time or very little discussion around female leadership. And I feel like since the launch of Women's Agenda that the whole, you know, that's exploded. And I'm really proud of that because I think I think in many ways we helped start the, that conversation. It's now gone off into, you know, websites and uh, publications that are bigger than Women's Agenda but there was very little in the beginning when we launched it. So, you know, it's it's all it's been very personal for me uh, because I do feel that men um, of my age, of my you know experience, have had more, have been given more opportunities. So, mm. you know, but I'm going to keep fighting on. It's what you do. Mm. <laughs> now you say that you want to inspire the next generation, but I actually think you're mistaken in terms of this book because it inspires women of all ages. Oh, um, thank you. I don't think that I, I never actually I didn't actually read it thinking, oh, this is going to inspire all the millennials. I think it's inspiring to everyone. Um, but one of and one of the reasons for that is that um, you have been successful and achieved a lot uh against many odds because i mean i was sitting there and i was re- reading it and i'm saying to my partner oh my god she's tenacious and like do you know what school <laughs> she went to <laughs> and, well, like, yeah. and things like that and and yeah. i do you know what happened to her father <laughs> you know yeah. so <laughs> against so many odds that many people actually don't know about uh, or yeah. or wouldn't even Cross, it wouldn't even cross their minds because yeah. you've reached a certain, you know, level. Um, and it, it, it so much hard work has gone into that and I just almost kind of think, geez, Marina, do you ever get, don't you ever get just tired? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, yes, I know. And look, I think, um, you know, I'm 50 now and I, and I am looking at, you know, what the next 30 years will look like. Mm. Um, and there are things that I still want to do, you know, there are still, um, I'm, I'm hoping that, um, I get to do some, you know, to achieve everything that I want to do <laughs> in the future. And, um, what's on that yeah, list? I, well, you know, I've got, I've got a couple of business ideas, Valerie, and, <laughs> but at least one, at least one that's really, um, quite compelling and that, you know, I've started to kind of plan for. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there there are lots of things to do. I really enjoy my board work. I, I you know, I love the, I love being the chair of the West Tigers more than you know. It surprised me how much I love it. Um, and and it's not because I'm it's not because I you know 
love going along to the games. I mean, I, I do now because I'm invested in the club and, and the team, but I really like, you know, making a difference to an organisation at a, at a level where you can actually work on the business rather than in the business. So I really love that. But um, tell me, And I want, but to, I want to do more of it. On that point, why in the mm. world did you want to become chair of West's Tigers? <laughs> well, actually, you know, I didn't want to. I'll tell you the story. I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um I, you know, I'd been on the board of Netball Australia. I was their, I was their um, appointed director, so I was the independent director that, that wasn't voted on. I was appointed by the board. And I did my three terms there, six years, and I knew nothing about netball to begin with. As, you know, this is no secret to the netballers. They all realise that. But, but really grew to love it, and, and it was a fantastically rewarding experience. And then I, after my third term, I had, you have to come off the board. That's, that was the, um, that's the constitution. And... I then was approached by um, a board recruiter to say, you know, are you interested in another sports board? And I had thought long and hard about it. And I thought, well, you know, I quite like to be on a on a male sports board that re- that needs gender diversity. So, again, you know, back to my kind of core cool passion. Mm-hmm. And about six months later, I got a call from um, the NRL organize- asking me to come along for an interview. I didn't know which club. I knew, I knew it was, they were looking for independent directors for some of the clubs and so I went along and as it turned out it was the West Tigers and they were looking for three independent directors um, with the, with the um, proviso that one of them be a woman. And, and one of the three, of the three, two were women, which was fantastic, two of three, um, and, you know, obviously I was one of them. And then just at the first board meeting, I was, um, someone nominated me to be the chair and that was it. And, and I, was, I was anxious about it. Um, <laughs> Because in the lead up to that first board meeting, someone had whispered to me, you know, would you consider being the chair? And I remember having dinner with a friend and saying, oh, my God, can you believe that someone thinks I could be the chair? And it was this guy that had said to me, you know, in fact, it was Bernard Keenan, uh, Bernard Keenan, Bernard, Bernard Keenan from Crikey. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, well, you have to do it. If they, if they decide to nominate you as a chair, you have to do it. And I said, oh, you know, I don't know. I've never chaired a board. I've been on some great boards with great chairs, but I've never chaired a board. And he, and he just looked at me and said, I've listened to you for years tell, tell women that they have to take an opportunity and just go with it. And so now you have to do this. You have to do this. And I was lying in bed that night and I thought, you know, how often does a woman get an opportunity to chair a board? Mm. Really? Mm. Never. Very, very rarely. And particularly a male sports board. And so I thought, okay, if, if it's offered to me, I'll take it. And, you know, and then there it was on the side. At the board yes. meeting, there it was, you know. I was um, uh, nominated, nobody, nobody else was nominated and I was, you know, elected um, unopposed and so there, there it was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So um, finally, before we wrap up, in terms of the book, what was the most rewarding thing about the process? I think the fact that I've completed it, to be honest. I mean, not, and, and when I say that, I, I should, I, that actually sounds really strange because I do cl- complete things. So, you know, it, you know, it took me seven years to do my MBA and I only had seven years, otherwise I would have had to start again, right? So I do do things, I'm pretty tenacious. But um, I think I surprised myself that I could get just, that I could actually write a book. I mean, it was so strange. But but also really cathartic. It's such a great. Why process. in the world would it be surprising? Writing... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I'm not one of those people that ever that used to walk around thinking I had a book in there. I think that's probably why I never. I know a lot of people do. There are a lot of people and a lot of journalists who think I'm going to write a book. You know, and some of them write brilliant books. I never used to walk around thinking 
oh, I, I have to write a book. So, mm-hmm. you know, getting to the end, um, and and really the process was quite short, actually. I think that surprised me. You know, when you think about the fact that I signed a contract in June, I delivered the book in January, mm-hmm. and my book's on sale in May. So it's less than 12 months, and there's a book. I mean, I, I look back and I can barely believe it myself. Um, and everybody who was part of the process, so some of the friends and family, are still in shock that, you know, wasn't I just talking about a book probably driving them crazy only a few months ago? Mm-hmm. And now now, now there's a book. They're coming to a launch. You know, it's, it's a strange thing. But it's also wonderfully cathartic. So, you know, I'm pretty good at letting go of things. I, I do actually have a very tough skin. And as you know, I write about that in the book, that I've got mm-hmm. a very, very tough hide. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've learned that over the years to become resilient. And that's that's great. But there's something really wonderful about the release of writing it down and then letting it go, even though it never, it, unfortunately now it's never going. <laughs> it's going to sit there forever. <laughs> now, one of the scariest things for me is um, when I'm about to read the book of a friend. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say that one of the most amazing things for me is when I read it and I just love every bit of it. And I think that, um, as I said, it's not just for young women, it's for any woman or man for that matter who is interested in creating a successful career but also the lessons that you have in there, the extremely practical lessons that aren't just how-to, you've got real-life examples, which is yeah. the best part, of, uh, of goal-setting uh you know it 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 doesn't sound like because we've there's so many articles on gold setting around the place but the way you've explained it really it really resonates and really makes so much sense so and I just think it's um you know I just have to say congratulations it's a fantastic oh thank you oh that's really lovely no it's uh I, I mean it anyway um that brings us to the end of our interview so what's your advice final words of advice to people who now, when you think about our listeners who are aspiring writers, they might want to become journalists. They might want to become magazine editors. You know, they haven't got that first job at that magazine yet. What's your advice to them who, uh, for people who want to break into the industry? Well, you need to differentiate yourself. So I think that's probably the other, hopefully that's the other message that I've left, you know, anyone who's read the book is that, you know, I worked very hard at making sure that I, you know, my skill sets, my, everything that I put together, every bit of studying, every bit of, you know, my work history um, sets me apart from other people. And so I think differentiating yourself is really important because everyone starts, particularly if you come out of university, um, you start with the same set of skills. Which, which, you know, are very limited. Um, everyone, you know, maybe somebody did better at uni than others. It's not necessarily the driving factor for why we would choose somebody. So you need to, uh, I think, start writing, you know. I mean, I, I've, I've always said to young people who ask my advice that the great thing for them now that we didn't have when I was growing up um, is, is the internet and to be able to blog. So mm-hmm. you actually do have an opportunity to showcase your thinking. And, and again, don't, you know, when you think about a blog, even think about, you know, what you're going to offer a, a group of people that isn't currently on offer, and and make sure that you remain true to that and showcase your uh, your your strategy and your writing as a result of that, so that you actually have something to show. So 
I, I think that you know people writers or potential writers now have an advantage because of that. Um, the disadvantage is that there aren't as many jobs as there were when I started out. So it was, you know, it was relatively easy for me to move, for example, between the suburbans and the metros. But even that, okay, so there are a lot of people who, even starting out in journalism, would never have considered taking a job in a community newspaper like I did. So, you you know, I, don't, I think you have to take the opportunity, you, any opportunity you can take it. That's my, that's really the first thing. Because again, I've had young people say to me, oh, you know, I was offered an opportunity with a free publication and I thought, oh, I don't really want to do that. I want to hang out for something better. And I'm thinking, God, your best chance of getting something better is if you're working in something else. So, you know, take take whatever opportunity you can, gain as many experiences as you can and, and just keep asking. You have to tell people what you want. I think, again, that's hopefully a message that came through. Mm. You have to tell people what you want. I did it all the way through. It's the way that I got my very first opportunity in media was I you know I bored that those train travelers stupid every day <laughs> telling them I, I know I'm working in a bank but I really want to be a journalist and one day one of them cracked I think and thought for Christ's sake the only way we can get this woman to shut up is if I introduce her to the local editor-in-chief and that it all went from there <laughs> wonderful great advice and thank you so much for your time today Marina that's okay thank you for having me There you go, Marina. What a great interview. Like, I, it's such an interesting thing. I remember the first time I met her, I was a cadet journalist and I was working for a, a small publishing company that um, in Alexandria and I got sent off to one of my first sort of press geeks, you know, do's. Mm. And I was so nervous because I was, you know, I felt like I was about 18 or something, you know, yeah. 19. And I was so nervous. And I was, you know, going off to this thing, pretending to be a journalist, is what, which is what I felt like I was doing mm-hmm. um, in this room full of people who all seemed so glamorous and fabulous and all that sort of stuff. And Marina was there and she was at the time, I think, if not editing Dolly, she was, you know, something pretty fabulous. Mm. And um, she was so friendly like Mm. she obviously like she went out of her way to talk to me we had a great chat about various things she asked me where I was up to and I've never ever forgotten it and I think that um you know from that perspective that warm engaging thing she you know it's a it's a true skill Mm. to to kind of be able to I mean, it wasn't networking per se because I wasn't of, you know, like I was just a person standing next to her. Mm. And we often talk about the importance of talking to the people standing next to you. Mm. Um, and in that sense, she she was so amazing and so memorable that I've never forgotten her. And, I've you know, we've sort of kept vaguely in touch all these years. But as she's gone from strength to strength and, you, you know, I, I guess it's um, you create a fan that way, don't you? Mm. Because I've always been a fan of hers because I remember exactly how nice she was to me at that particular thing when I was so terrified. So that was great. And the other thing I found really interesting about your interview was the fact that she's kept notes. You know, Mm. it's such a writerly thing to do, isn't it, to kind of be writing all the time, making notes, kind of diary entries and things like that. And um, and then, you know, she's so when she went to write the book, it was almost, you know, half written. And I think it just underscores the importance, I think, of, of writing all the time because you don't know what's going to be useful and you don't necessarily need to be struck by inspiration. You write down the things that are around you and the things that are happening to you and, you know, voila, you know, it might take 20 years, but hello, there's your book. 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I just love that because um, one of the things that comes across in the book is, you know, tell people what you want. And I just love the story that she used to catch the train in from Rudy Hill every day to her job in the city when she was working at, of all things, the Reserve Bank. And she just used to tell people that she really wanted to be a journalist. She might be working the bank, but she really wanted to be a journalist until one of the days one of them just went, oh, okay, look, just go ring this person. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where, you know, and that's where um, uh, uh, she ended up getting a job at a community newspaper. But, uh, yeah, but great takeaway message. Tell people what you want because how are they going to know? They're not going to read your mind otherwise. That's exactly right. Let's move on to our web pick or app pick for the week. What have you got for us, Al? Well, you know, it's an unusual thing that it's me that's got this, <laughs> but I saw <laughs> I know, everybody fall over. Um, but I saw this um, on uh, via Twitter because, you know, I have to spend my time there lurking around. And um, it's it, it's on the bookwrite.com site and it's, a, it's called Litzy. And the headline that caught my attention was, Litzy, if Instagram and Goodreads had a perfect baby. I thought, <gasps> okay, I'm interested in this. Yes. It's a social media app for readers. And That's it's kind great. of like, it's like Instagram, but there's rules. You can basically do only three things on your page. You can quote from a book you're reading, you can blurb a book you're reading, or you can review a book you're reading. And there's, you know, you, you will take a photograph or whatever of the book that you are reading. And so it's all about finding your next book. It's all about finding a great read. It's all yeah. about sharing great reads with other readers. And um, I just thought it was a really, you know, you have to tag a book title for every post. So the community is very much focused on reading. And I think that if you are like someone who, there's some fantastic Instagram accounts for readers about mm. books and things like that, which I have to say is something I've been loving about my new foray into Instagram is yes. that. Um, and so this to me just sounds like, this is all of that and only that. Yeah, and right. I think that there's got to be something good in that. So I'm going to give it a crack. I'm going to be an early adopter. Everybody wow. fall over. I know. I know. Take a deep breath. <laughs> I'm going to give it a go and I'm going to report back and let you know um, Let you know what I think about it because I think it sounds like something that if you're into reading, uh, which clearly I am, um, then it sounds like it's a, it's a good thing. It's a great place to start. I, I, I love word of mouth and I love discovering books via, you know, the fact that other people are raving about them. Yeah. So I'm ready. I'm ready to try it and I'm going to come back and, and I'll let you guys know what it's like. Okay. Yeah, so it's called it. Litsy and Litsy. Um, just let me double check. Yeah. L-I-T-S-Y. Fantastic. And it does the, um, uh, the interface does look very similar to Instagram. So it's not like yes. you're going to be learning a whole new No, thing. I think it's all very similar. It's just much, much more tightly focused than, than Instagram, you know, can be. Yeah, for sure. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. So let's move on to our platform building tip this week. You want to hear okay. it? <laughs> what have you got? I do. I, do. I really do. I know some people are going to think that this is not important, but uh, or that I shouldn't be focused on this, but I actually do think it's important and I'm going to be honest about it. And right. I think that if you're serious at, bu at building your author platform, then you need to get a decent photo. Oh. 
Yeah, of yourself. This is a bit controversial given our conversation last week regarding do skinny pretty writers get the best book deals? Yeah, I'm not necessarily saying you need to get a photo of yourself looking skinny and pretty. Okay. (laughs) Thank God for that. Oh, my Lord. It just needs to be not blurry and of a decent resolution because, you know, some people take photos and they're seriously um, out of focus. Um, And one of the reasons I'm saying that you need to do this is that people make judgments and I don't even necessarily mean your readers even I'm just saying mm-hmm. people say on in the media who mm. might want to interview you if yeah. you've actually got a really crappy crappy photo um, that's available on your website that they could use and another author has a good photo you may well both be interviewed for the same article but you and I both know that chances are that the author with the good photo will actually get more coverage, you know, more pages. They'll get a bigger picture. They'll get a, yes, Mm. they will. And it's unfortunate that that's how media works, but it is true. But as you say, like it doesn't have to be, um, it just needs to be not looking like you got cut out of the family. Like I've seen Mm. photos that authors have used where it looks like they've just cut themselves off the the end of the family photo. Because they have. Yep. Or there's a photo or they're there, you know, with the cat on their head or they've got, (laughs) you know, just, yeah, or like a really strange selfie or something. Like if you're, depending on what you're writing, a really strange selfie could be just perfect, but it has to be the right context. Um, And the other thing that you really need to have is to make sure you've got a high resolution copy of that photograph. Um, So that if a print publication contacts you and says, we need a photo to attach to this Q&A you've done or whatever, you can send them the high res shot because you cannot send them something that's 50 kilobytes um, Mm. that's totally suitable for a website Mm. um, because it won't print. You know, it's, you've got to think about that. You need a lot of pixels Mm. to get a decent photo in print. So make sure that you've got a high res copy of whatever shot it is that you've had taken. Yeah. And you don't even need to spend money on a photographer. I mean, if you want to, of course, go ahead, but Mm. you just need a decent quality shot. And the thing with decent quality shots, even if you take it yourself, like, um, you know, you put the camera there and put the timer on or get Mm -hmm. a friend to help you is it's a numbers game. If you take the the trouble with people is they take two or three shots and then they feel Mm -hmm. awkward and they go, Oh, that'll do. Don't. You're just there with your friend. Take 30 shots. One of them is going to be good. It's, it's you know, just try. And, 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 and The law of that. averages said there's going to be one there that's decent if yeah. you take 50 shots. Yeah. For sure. Mm. So definitely get a decent photo because apart from if you're serious about building your author platform, apart from, you know, just looking professional and you don't need to be in a suit or anything, it just needs to be a decent photo. And as Alison said, not cut out of the family photo, not on while you're on holidays in Bali unless your book is about being on holidays in Bali, not Mm. that photo with your grandchildren in the shot Mm. from 20 years ago and they're now grown Mm. up. Mm. Um, Yeah, definitely get a decent photo. And these and other very useful tips, including an entire blueprint on how to build your author platform, are in Alison's fantastic course called How to Build Your Author Platform. (laughs) interestingly well you know i think sometimes you just got to tell it like it is yes. don't you? choosing the right headline is very very important and that's I, a whole another story i love the fact that the, the people who are following this program are actually getting um a big building their communities getting more fans and really finding success and getting results so if you're interested you can look up writerscenter.com.au 
slash platform. That's writercentre.com.au slash platform to find out more. So that brings us almost to the end of this episode, Al. What are you doing this coming week apart from um, probably do, not making chocolate crackles or going to IKEA? Well, well, you know what? Now that you've mentioned them, I might actually make chocolate crackles. I haven't made them for a long time. I did some beetroot chocolate. I just don't even go oh. there, but I did some. I know. I, so last week I made beetroot chocolate um, donuts. Oh, that sounds really strange. With a chocolate glaze. And, well, it sort of was. So we, <laughs> <laughs> we No, we were watching um, – this is, this is where these things come from half the time. We were watching um, better – we call it Better Gnomes, but it's Better Homes and Gardens. Oh, yes. Um, so we were watching Better Gnomes and Karen Martini made these things because she's a fantastic – I love her as a mm. TV chef and her books are fantastic. So she made these chocolate beetroot things and the boys were like, wow, what would that taste like? And I said, well, a friend of mine used to make beetroot cake all the time and she swears it's, you know, fantastic. So mm. we made a pact – that we would give these things a go. And so we made them because you got a donut tray with the copy of the magazine that had the recipe in it, oh. right? So, yeah, so it was quite a palaver. Yeah. Um, and we made them and we decided that we would never make them again. We were glad that we'd made them and glad that we tried them, but we would never make them again. And I, But I think if you have a gluten intolerance, they you would find them quite awesome. So you got a donut tray. I didn't even know there were such things. I thought you plopped donuts out in well, there. You do, but this is a new thing, okay? So apparently this is now a thing. Macaroons are over, macarons, whichever, are over, and now we're on to donuts, okay? And these are donuts that you can bake, so they're healthier, like a healthy donut. They probably don't taste like donuts then. Well, no, they, they're more like a cake in a donut shape. Right. They are really like a cake in a donut I shape. See. I can't believe we're st- – hello, this is so you want to be a writer. <laughs> I know, sorry. <laughs> so, so I'm terribly sorry that I have totally taken you down the road oh. and you're all sitting there imagining chocolate beetroot donuts. But anyway, yeah. um, so I won't, be making, I won't be making those. But I am doing some more um, school workshops this week. And on Sunday I will be at the uh, Sydney Writers' Festival live and local uh, Wollongong uh, festival sessions. Ah. I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing a talk, a reading, um, as part of that, which is going to be very fun. And, uh, yeah, that, that will pretty much fill up my week. I think it's, that's a pretty big week for me. That is a big week. Uh, Massive. Massive. Next week I'll be back to walking the dog around the block and we'll all be back to normal. (laughs) And I promise never to mention beetroot ever again. (laughs) Well, I will not be having in, you know, the Philippines or doing a keynote or anything. I, tomorrow I will be eating the chocolate crackles that I ate that I made today. Mm. Uh, so that's about as glamorous as, as it gets. Oh, I'm going to trivia and mm. it's my job to memorize the periodic table in order and all the, the elements. So we'll see how that goes. Um, okay. I am going to Mercedes Australian Fashion Week on Thursday, so that should be fun. I can pretend oh, to be a fashionista. that is exciting. Even though I'm not. Will you be in the front row? I doubt it. <laughs> Doubt it. Is it. What is this you as a fashion blogger? Are you having a moment? Uh, do I look like a fashion blogger? <laughs> no, but I thought it might have been an unusual moment. No, I've been kindly invited by Microsoft as their guest as they're sponsoring one of the um, catwalk shows. So oh, be so fun. fun. Yes. I used to love, I mean, you know, I'm so not the fashion blogger, or, but when you work for fashion magazines, you do get to go to these things and yes. it's very, very fun. It's like entering an alien universe. I love yes. it. Yes, it is. It All is. right, it's so you'll report back universe. next week, yes? I will, I will. 
So where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me uh, on my website at alisontate.com. You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Instagram and Facebook as Alison Tate Writer. Awesome. Mm. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and on Instagram. Just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook. Even though I keep telling people I'm the Valerie Koo on Snapchat, I've been a bit (laughs) hopeless on Snapchat lately, so I'll try and up my game. You might just have to admit it's not for you. Yeah, possibly. Mm. (laughs) I do send um, private messages to people, you know, of me Mm. doing funny faces and really grown-up things like that. But... um, just make sure you don't hit public on that by mistake. I know, right? Ooh. Yes. <laughs> All right. So um, until we chat to you again, uh, have a great week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>